0: Open your Bibles up to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. Okay? It starts on page 941 in uh, the Welcome Table Bibles. But I'm gonna actually, if you have one of those Bibles, I'm gonna have you turn to page 964. And if you just have your own Bible, just get to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. That's what we're going to look at today. We're, going, we're starting a new series. It's going to take us through uh, the entirety of John's gospel. It's 21 chapters long. Uh, the, the, the verses and chapters were added later, but for our sake, it's, it's helpful for us to, to organize things and find things, 21 chapters. And, and so why why then are we looking or are we beginning this series by looking at a passage near the end of the book? Why John 20, verses 30 and 31 today? Because John actually tells us why he wrote it in these verses. And Lord willing, by the time we're done today, we'll not only understand why John wrote his book, but also why we need this book. So I want to read it, <clears throat> because it's two verses long, and, uh, and then I'll pray, and then we'll dig in together. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Father, we love you, and we thank you for your word, and we pray exactly what John's purpose is, that you would carry that out in our our minds and hearts this morning, that, that we would be convinced that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, we would have life in His name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. From our very first Sunday service all the way back in October of 2019, coming up on three years now, the goal of Redeemer Community Church has been to set before you the person and the work of Jesus Christ and to call you to total dependence upon Him and total confidence in Him. But why? Why has that been our singular focus? Why is everything that we read and sing and preach and pray on a Sunday morning centered solely on Him? Why don't we spend more time responding to the current events? There's plenty of them, right? Why don't we spend more effort trying to blend into the cultural norms and look like uh, everything and everyone else that's going on? because those things constantly change. They constantly change. They come and go. None of them brings us lasting satisfaction. None of them brings us lasting life. But but God's Word, the foundation on which we stand, the, the faithful, true, and living Word of God, tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same, Yesterday, today, and forever, and he alone has the ability to give us what no one and nothing else can. Helpful way to explain the goal of our Sunday mornings is to explain the goal of John's gospel, because his purpose for writing and our purpose for gathering is one and the same. And so this morning, John 20, 30 and 31 will be our guide as we look at the content of John's gospel the claim of John's gospel, the call of John's gospel, and the care of John's gospel. The content, the claim, the call, and the care. We'll start with the content. What is this, okay? First of all, we need to clarify something. If the gospel is about Jesus, which we clearly just sang in that new song this morning, right, then why is it called the gospel of John? The word gospel, our English word gospel, comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. In short, the Christian gospel is the good news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection for the salvation of sinners. John's gospel is that same good news. It's just his telling of it. Instead of calling it the gospel of John, we could call it the gospel according to John. And some of your Bibles, if you look at the beginning the title of, uh, of the book, they will label it that way, the gospel according to John. There's four gospels in the New Testament, one written by Matthew, one written by Mark, one written by Luke, and one written by John. And so in this sense, the term gospel is used to describe, it's a genre of, of book in, in, the, in the Bible. It's used to describe a biography that's written about Jesus' uh, earthly life, that culminates in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. It's like a a microbiography with the focus of the final week of of his life before his death and resurrection, okay? or leading up to that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all messengers of the gospel, but Jesus is the message of the gospel. Each of these writers was sharing the same message, but from their own unique perspective to their own unique audiences and for their own unique purposes, okay? John's gospel was the last one that was written out of the four, most likely near the end of the first century. John was one of Jesus's 12 uh, disciples and a member of Jesus's inner circle along with Peter and James, who was John's brother. It's traditionally believed that he wrote this gospel while he was staying in Ephesus, and his original audience included uh, the, the, the larger area of the Greco-Roman world that, it, that included both Jews and Gentiles, We'll see him uh, explain Jewish customs. It'll be in parentheses if you have a CSB translation, which is what we're using. Um, you'll, we'll see a lot of parentheses where he's, he's, he's stopping to explain these words or these customs for his non-Jewish audience, but, uh, he, but the, the themes that he's covering clearly has a Jewish audience in mind as well. The Gospels that are written by Matthew, Mark, and Luke all share very similar content with one another, okay? They're often called the synoptic gospels because they're so so closely tied together in their content. Roughly 90% of the content in John's gospel is unique to his account. 90%. While the other three focus heavily on the kingdom of God inaugurated through Jesus, John's gospel focuses more on Jesus's identity as the son of God and his special relationship with God the Father. But just because most of John's content is different than the other three gospel accounts, that doesn't mean that John's message is different than the other three. Like I already said, all four gospels find their crescendo, the, the big point of the whole thing, they, they, they reach the the life or the, the resurrection and the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, okay? That's the whole focal point of all four gospels is leading up to that uh, to those, those things, Jesus' death and resurrection, his crucifixion. I like the way that one study Bible puts it. says, with John, we will discover that there is not more than the gospel to bring fulfillment to our lives, just more of the gospel. I love that. In other words, John's not contradicting the gospel message of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's, he's deepening our understanding of it. Okay, so look at John chapter 20. Verses 30 and 31 again. John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record signs performed by Jesus that aren't written in John's gospel, but John also records signs that Jesus performed, most of which are not written in the other three Gospels. And in the context of the Gospels, a sign is a miracle of divine origin. It's a signal, S-I-G-N, signal, right? That points to someone greater than the miracle itself. The sign is not the thing. The sign points to the thing, right? John uses miracles of Jesus to point to the divinity of Jesus as God's Son and the long-awaited Messiah, (laughs) Structure of, of John's gospel is fairly simple. It's bookended by a brief uh, prologue and an epilogue. And then in between, it's divided into two main sections. Chapters 1 through 12, commonly known as the book of signs. Chapters 13 through 20 are commonly known as the book of glory. Now, as you would guess, the book of signs focuses on the signs that Jesus performed when, uh, that John included in his gospel. When he says in, in chapter 20, the verses that we just read, but these are written... The these that he's referring to are the signs. And so we're going to see most of those in the first 12 chapters. John likes to use the number seven. It's a number that represents completion and perfection. And he shapes his gospel with seven signs that ultimately point to Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. So what are these signs? John specifically identifies the first two, and they both take place in Cana of Galilee. In chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine. Okay, John says, first sign. In chapter 4, Jesus comes back to Cana, and he heals a royal official's son, who actually is not in Cana, Cana, but is in uh, Capernaum. John says, this is sign number two. But then after these two signs, John leaves it up to the reader to continue counting The other five, okay. Chapter five: Jesus heals a paralyzed man. Chapter six: Jesus feeds the five thousand and walks on water. Chapter nine: He heals a blind man. Chapter eleven: Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, if you were keeping track of uh, the list as I just rattled those off, you probably noticed that I mentioned six total things and not seven. Some biblical scholars and teachers separate the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water as two signs instead of one. In that case, then the raising of Lazarus at the end of chapter 11 would be the seventh and ultimate sign that points to Jesus' identity as the Messiah and the Son of God. But I tend to agree with the scholars and the teachers who see the seventh and ultimate sign as Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. And I think that there's clues in John's Gospel that point us to this, okay? Chapter two, after Jesus cleansed the temple by turning over tables and driving out money changers, and, and the Jews asked him, they said, What sign will you show us for doing these things? You know what Jesus' answer was? He said, Destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days. John even tells us that Jesus was referring not to the temple that they were standing in, but the temple of his own body. He was alluding to the crucifixion and the resurrection. What sign? The ultimate one, Jesus says, is his own crucifixion and resurrection. And I think it's worth asking, okay? Why would John put the purpose of his gospel near the end of it instead of at the beginning? I don't think that it's a coincidence that immediately following the account of Jesus' resurrection in John chapter 20, that John finishes that by saying, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Is there any more perfect and any more ultimate sign that points to Jesus' identity than his own resurrection from the dead? I don't think so. I think that's why that's the seventh one. Chapter 12 serves as a transition from the book of signs to the book of glory. From that point on, 40% of John's gospel, starting in chapter 12, narrows down, focuses in, slows down to the final week of Jesus' life leading up to his crucifixion and his resurrection. This section is called the book of glory because it's constantly mentioning the glory of Jesus, and and pointing to that glory through his crucifixion and resurrection. uh, uh, Just before he was betrayed and arrested, Jesus in, in, uh, yeah, 16, 17, somewhere in there. There's so many places. But just before he was was arrested and, and betrayed, Jesus prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. What's he talking about? It's time. It's time. The time has come for him to give himself as a ransom for his people. And in that, he's glorified. This section not only reveals Jesus's glory as the Son, but also his heart as the Savior. It starts with Jesus washing his disciples' feet in chapter 13. Then it moves to his farewell discourse in chapters 14 through 16, where he lovingly... Uh, comforts and assures and instructs his disciples. Chapter 17 is is uh, widely known as the high priestly prayer, where Jesus prays for himself and for his disciples and for all believers who who will come in the future. Chapters 18 through 20 covers betrayal and, and arrest and his crucifixion and his resurrection, and then chapter 21 closes things out with an epilogue. Okay, so that's the structure. That's the content. Now that we have the content. On John's gospel, let's look a little closer at the claim of John's gospel. Look back at chapter 20, verse 31. It says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. The claim of John's gospel is that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. In John five thirty-six, Jesus says, these very works that I'm doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. Oftentimes throughout his writing, John couples together Jesus' signs and his teaching. And again, in keeping with his love of sevens, John backs up the claim of his gospel by recording seven I am statements that Jesus makes. Jesus' use of this phrase, I am, it's a reference to God's covenant name that he revealed to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3. Listen to verses 13 and 14. Then Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Try saying that to somebody and see what their reaction is to you. Like, hey, what's your name? I am who I am. That's quite a claim, isn't it? I am who I am, he says. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Chapter 10, verse 7, he says, I am the gate for the sheep. And in verse 11 of chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. Move to chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in chapter 15, verse 1, he says, I am the true vine. Now, along with those seven specific I am statements, John records seven other times where Jesus alludes to his divine identity by saying, I am he in some way, shape, or form. This, this, this. Uh, this declaration, I am he. It's a loaded statement that Jesus makes. The most notable and direct statement is in John 8, 58. Jesus is, is having this conversation with, uh, with the, Jewish, uh, the, the Jews, the Pharisees, and it's getting heated and elevated. And, and at, the, at the, the, the culminating point, right after he says this, they pick up stones and they want to kill him. He says, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am I am. Throughout John's gospel, there's several different witnesses besides Jesus and his works that give testimony to his identity. In the prologue, which we'll look at next week, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, John himself, the writer of the gospel, said that Jesus is God the Son, the Word made flesh. And then he talks about John the Baptist, and John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God the Father spoke to John the Baptist, and he told him, listen, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And in response, John the Baptist said, I've seen. I've seen and I've testified that this is the Son of God. And Jesus began calling his disciples to follow him. Andrew went and found Peter, and he told him, hey, we found the Messiah. And then Philip went and found Nathaniel, and he told him, we found the one that Moses wrote about in the law. And in her interaction with Jesus in chapter 4, the woman at the well ran back to her Samaritan village and said, come and see the one who told me everything that I ever did. Could this be the one? Could this be the Messiah? Chapter 5, Jesus told the Jews, the Father who sent me has himself testified about me. then he told him, listen, you pour over the scriptures because you think that you have eternal life in them and yet they testify about me. Chapter 6, after Jesus spoke some hard teaching, large crowds of disciples who who, who were just going with the flow and following him, they're like, nope, I'm out. This is way too hard. And they turned and they left. And when they turned and left, Jesus turned to the other 12, and he said, hey, you're not going to leave two, are you? Then Peter said, Lord, to whom will we go? You hold the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus came to Mary and Martha after hearing that Lazarus had, had been dead, died, was buried in the tomb. He came to raise Lazarus. Martha comes out. Jesus has a conversation with her says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anybody who believes in me, though he dies, will, will live. Do you believe this? She said, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Exact same words that John uses here in chapter 20. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. During his farewell discourse with the 11 disciples after Judas left to betray him, Jesus told them, I've spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I've told you. When the Counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And then Jesus told his disciples, you will also testify because you've been with me from the beginning. Witness after witness after witness in John's gospel, testifying to the reality of who Jesus is, the Messiah, the Son of God. John's gospel is his Holy Spirit-empowered, written testimony. It's his answer to what Jesus just said. You will testify about me. John, of course, went on to verbally testify many times about Jesus, but then he wrote this down. And his testimony is the claim of his gospel is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. There is no denying. You cannot read through this gospel and say that is not the claim. You can't do it. And be honest. Whether or not you believe that claim is a different story, and that's why we need to look at the call of John's gospel. Look back at verse 31 again, chapter 30, or of, of chapter 20. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the son of God so that you may believe the call of John's gospel is to believe the claim of John's gospel that that Jesus is in fact the Messiah and the son of God the entire new testament in the entire new testament the greek word that John uses for believe here in in uh, John 20:31 It's found 241 times. 98 of those times are in John's gospel. Isn't that amazing? 98, 40% of the overall use of this word in the entire New Testament is found in John's gospel. It's found in every chapter except for 15 and 18. Believe, 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 believe. And every time John uses it, it's always in the verb form. John intends... Belief to be an action and not just an idea. But what what does John mean then when he uses this verb? What what does it look like to be actively believing? John 1, 11 and 12 says, He came to his own, Jesus came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, So believing in Jesus involves receiving Jesus, welcoming and embracing all that he is and says and does. You can't welcome and embrace only some of who he is. You can't welcome and embrace only some of what he says and does. You can't piecemeal Jesus together. That's not Jesus. John makes it clear throughout his gospel that believing Jesus is an all-or-nothing kind of thing. The call of John's gospel is to believe the claim of John's gospel that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God. Because Jesus is the Son of God and one with the Father You can't receive one without the other. In John chapter 12, verse 44, Jesus cried out, the one who believes in me believes not only in me, but also in him who sent me. Notice that Jesus didn't say the one who believes me, but the one who believes in me. He says something similar to Martha in chapter 11, John 11, 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Believing Jesus is more than just agreeing that his words are true and his works are real. That's a necessary part, but it's not the whole picture. Believing goes further than mere agreement. To believe in Jesus is to rely on Jesus, to entrust yourself and all that you are to, to Him and all that He is, it's to depend on Him and not on yourself because you're confident in Him and not on yourself. Jesus associates believing in Him with loving Him. In John 16, 27, it says, For the Father Himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. And He associates loving with Him, or or loving him with obeying him in John 14, 23 and 24. Jesus answered, if anybody loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but is from the father who sent me. So to believe in Jesus is to believe in the father. To love Jesus is to love the father to obey Jesus is to obey the Father. And just as you cannot separate Jesus from the Father, you also cannot separate belief in Jesus from love for Jesus and obedience to Jesus. They're in, inextricably linked. Inseparable. In John eight thirty one. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, this is a large group they're all like yeah we're in he says this if you continue in my word then you are really my disciples don't treat this like a fad don't just don't just get behind the the guy that seems to have all the momentum and then drop out like they do in chapter six when they're like whoa hold on you want me to do what If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. Listen, it doesn't matter how emotional you get when you read God's word or you sing worship songs if you still don't obey what God's word says. Disobedience is evidence of unbelief. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible that you have memorized, it doesn't matter if you uh, quote it to others to defend it, to, to, to beat them over the head with it. Listen, To prove yourself right and them wrong, it doesn't matter how much you know it or how much you speak it if it doesn't lead you to a deep and abiding affection in Jesus Christ himself. A lack of love for Jesus is evidence of a lack of belief in him. Jesus's true disciples, by his own words, are those who obey him because they love him and they believe in him. Notice that our obedience is the proof of our love for Jesus and our belief in him and not the source of those things. It's our belief in him and our love for him that fuels our obedience to him. When we come to rely on Jesus's righteousness by believing in the perfect life that he lived on our behalf, then our obedience to him is no longer an attempt to convince him or ourselves that we have a righteousness of our own, because we don't. When we come to rely on Jesus and his love for us by believing in his death on the cross as our substitute to absorb God's wrath against us because of our sin, to take it upon himself, our love for him and our desire to keep his commands then continually grows And when we come to rely on the glory yet to come by believing in his resurrection from the dead and our resurrection with him, then we will continue in his word, like he says, with joyful perseverance because we know, we know that his love for us is unending. It's true, it's right, it's good, and his promises to us are secure. To believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God is not to believe that Jesus was a great teacher. It's not to believe that Jesus was a great prophet. It's not to believe that Jesus was a great example or a good political figure or just a good man. He does fit the bill for those things, except maybe the political one. To believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God is to believe that He came to bring about the forgiveness of sins and to reconcile sinners to God through his own life and death and resurrection. Do you believe this truth? This is the call of John's gospel. He lays it out plain and plain and simple and, and plain and deep. And he says, believe it. Believe it. This is the call of John's gospel, and it's one that none of us should ignore because of the care of John's gospel. Look one more time at chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Here it is. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. John's heart is for his readers of his gospel to, to have life in Jesus. That necessarily implies that there's no real life apart from Christ. It means that contrary to popular opinion in our culture, we cannot live our best life now or be the best version of ourselves without Jesus Christ. That's because without him, we're dead in our sin. John five twenty four. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Don't miss the direction there. From death to life. Jesus' words point to the fact that because we're born in sin, even though we're physically alive, our sin leaves us spiritually dead. And not only that, our sin leaves us under the, the judgment of God and without hope. John 8, 24, Jesus says, if you do not believe what, that I am he, there's one of the I am he's, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. John three, 3 thirty six. John says, the one who believes in the son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. The only hope that anyone has of escaping eternal death under God's righteous wrath is to rely on Jesus to believe in him, to embrace all that he is and says and does and entrust your whole life to his care. John wants his readers to have life in Christ. He doesn't just want to prove them wrong. He loves them, even though he doesn't know all of them. And he wants them to have life. And so in probably most, the, the most well-known words of all of Scripture, he wrote John 3.16. For God loved the world in this way. Your, your version might say, God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You see, John's heart for his readers is for them to know God's heart for the world. John wants everyone to know that because of God's great love, he provided the way, not a way the way of escape from death and from his own righteous wrath by sending his one and only son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to die under his wrath in the place of all who believe in him. And the next two verses reinforces John's call for us to believe, John three seventeen and 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son. God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world. Why? Because the world is already condemned. Remember Genesis 3? Remember the sin and the rebellion in the garden? Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. Our sin condemns us under God's judgment and our unbelief keeps us under God's judgment. The only way to come out from under God's judgment is to believe. It's to believe. To believe in the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What's the life that John is referring to here? It's eternal life. And what is eternal life? From the passage I just read, one aspect of it is living in, in, in freedom from God's righteous condemnation and judgment forever because we're no longer spiritually dead. Another aspect of eternal life is that we're freed from the physical bonds of death forever. In John 6:40, Jesus says, "'For this is the will of my Father.'" that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Eternal life means that we share in Jesus' resurrection forever, but it doesn't just mean that God will bring us out of the tomb. It also means that God puts His Spirit into us. Listen to John 7, and 39. The one who believes in me, Jesus says, as the Scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from Deep within him, he said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Guess what? Jesus has been glorified now. John's gospel has an end. Jesus is risen. We don't have to wait for the Spirit. When you believe in Jesus, guess what? Guess what you get? Guess who you get? God Himself through His Spirit. We don't just share in the resurrection life to come. We share in the resurrection life now. This is why John's gospel, evangelistic as it is, the good news, it's it's not just for unbelievers. If you're a believer, you need the gospel every single day of your life. And John's gospel is for us too. John not only wants us those who, who don't believe in Jesus to believe in him. He also wants those who believe in Jesus to keep believing, as Jesus says, to continue in my word and to experience an ever-deepening joy and freedom in him. Jesus actually defines eternal life when he prays to God the Father during his high priestly prayer in chapter 17. John 17:3. 17, he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is eternal fellowship with God the Father, through God the Son, and by God the Spirit. It's to be one with Christ and therefore one with God forever. Eternal life is not just to know about God. Eternal life is to know God personally. Isn't that amazing that God would do that? And to know God personally is to share And the same love that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit share with one another. It's incredible. There's no other love. There's no greater love. There's no greater life to be found anywhere else. That is why, week in and week out, we set before you the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That is why, as we do that, we call you to total dependence upon and total confidence in him and, and him alone. No one or nothing else. There's no greater person than Jesus. There's no greater work than his. There's nothing greater that you can devote your life to than Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's why we're going to go through John's gospel together. And that's why John wrote his gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word that points us to him over and over and over again. And we pray that as we hear it, you would continue to enliven our hearts to receive it by faith, For those that don't believe, that they would believe and find life in your name. And for those of us that do believe, that we would find deeper and and more abundant, full life in Christ as you grow our love for you, our obedience to you, our joy in you, all for your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.